Hello, and welcome to the Scene to Song Season 3 finale. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and this week I brought back seven of our Season 3 guests to talk about some of the topics we discussed this year and answer some questions from our listeners. This discussion was held live on Monday, December 21st on Scene to Song's Facebook page and was recorded for this podcast almost in its entirety. I hope you've enjoyed the season, and if you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast, as well as give us a rating and a review, which will help this podcast find even more listeners who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musical theater as a literary art form. Hello, everyone. Uh, as you know, I'm Shoshana Greenberg, and uh, we have some great guests from season three today to kind of wrap up the season and, you know, take listener questions um, and comments. We have some that were submitted in advance. We also have uh, an option to actually call in um, to the web webcast live stream uh to uh and we can you can uh ask your question or say your comment on the uh on the zoom on the live stream and we can discuss so hopefully we'll get some calls uh throughout the thing but we also have some listener submitted questions as well so now we're actually ready to get started um i'm going to start with uh just uh First, before we go around, I wanted to just, uh, a guest who's not here with us, who uh, I wish was here with us, is Michael Boyd, who was a guest this season, um, episode 38, talking about inner city. And um, he passed away uh, actually a few months after we recorded the episode. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that I got that time with him. We've recorded in person since it was, um, since it was right before COVID times. And um, it was great to get that, that time with him. So I wanted to start with uh, that, you know, brief tribute to him because he was definitely a, a big part of this season. He's also on the Outtakes episode talking about 70s theater as well. It's, he was a 70s theater, like, aficionado. So... Wanted to shout out him. Um, and uh, yeah, so I guess we'll start with, we'll go around, we'll have the guests introduce themselves. And if you could say um, which episode you did, where you're zooming in from, um, a brief uh, and a brief answer to this. Uh, we have one get to know our guest question, so we'll have a brief answer to that if you'd like. Uh, what's a musical you've been listening to or thinking about a lot this year? And it doesn't have to be connected to this year's events per se, but you know, it's just something you've been thinking about, thinking about this year. So, um, I, since it's Zoom, I'll, I'll start calling on the first person. Uh, we'll start with, uh, Rachel Peters. Hi. Um, so I am Zooming in from Brooklyn, New York. And uh, my episode was, I think it was number 40, which was about Cole Porter songs. I think it was called Two Things Can Be True at Once. 
Um, and a musical uh, that I technically haven't been thinking about a lot for most of the year, but which I recently saw again for the first time in a very long time is Pippin, um, which was something that I had choreographed back in college. And I've been thinking about it a lot because it, it feels real different in this era um, than it did all that time ago. Great. And uh, we'll go next to uh I'll go around my, my Zoom. We'll go next to Greg. Hello, uh, I'm Gregory Jacobs Roseman. Uh, I was on the season three premiere, uh, uh, episode uh, 30, I have it written down here, uh, 34, <laughs> which was all about the musicals of Jerry Herman. Uh, Jerry Herman had just passed away a month or so beforehand, so we were paying tribute to him, and that was that was really fun to do. And that was also pre-COVID, so I had to be in the same room as Shoshana. Um, so coming full circle to this finale, uh, um, I, what am I missing? What uh, what musical have I been thinking about? Um, oh, I'm zooming in from uh, from Hocus in Delaware. Uh, I I've, I've, I went home to my family's house from New York for the holidays. Um, uh, what I've been thinking about a lot this year has really been I, I don't think I can narrow it down to just one, but uh, Sondheim's entire oeuvre, <laughs> as it were. Um, if I if I want to be really specific, Act Two of Into the Woods. Uh, yeah, it's it, what I, what I, and the reason why that that's been playing around in my head is because it's so much about an unseen, terrible force, you know, affecting a community and the community coming together to combat it. Um, and so that's that's really been, you know, sort of playing on my heartstrings a little bit this year. And so that's been on the top of my brain. Excellent. Um, we'll go next to Jason. I'm zooming in from Astoria, New York. It's funny, like, as fancy as I always want to be about this type of thing, it's been frozen, too. <laughs> like, because I feel like it was weirdly prophetic. <laughs> like, that entire score kind of feels very, like, yeah. boring slash living in the 2020 world. I, I feel like uh, Bobby and Krista Lopez didn't have to do... Didn't, didn't have to go so hard. <laughs> like a lot of the score is very, it kind of has this very dark foreboding kind of thing going on with it. It's, it's kind of all over the place in this really bizarre way that somehow works. And the, and the song Do the Next Right Thing has been in my head all year. Like as, I've done, as family issues have arisen and people have been lost and or issues with job, security and just existing in the world for the past eight months, eight, nine months, however many months, time has no meaning. Uh, that song just all keeps popping into my head and I'm, and uh, I, I just, it, and it kind of has become like a little bit of a uh, mantra of like, it's almost like my brain is just kind of reminding myself of this little thing to just keep, keep me going to the next step. To, yeah. continuing to exist in this world <laughs> right and you did the horror musical oh, episode i did uh episode 46 the horror and musical theater yeah great um great and next we have rachel dean i am calling in from queens new york um i did the episode with david brush uh episode 50 2020 in musical theater uh which was a really fascinating thing to talk about um, this is an incredibly shallow answer to the question, but the musical that I feel like comes up the most in our household 
lately is High School Musical, and it's just because anytime something bad happens in the world or a politician does something idiotic or whatever, we just say, no, 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 <laughs> in one of the songs. So that's all I have for you. <laughs> that's my favorite song from High School Musical, actually. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so we'll go next to Victoria. Well, first off, I just have to say, when I thought High School Musical and this year, I thought we're all in this together. So. <laughs> yes! I should have said that. I like okay. that. I like, I like yours, too. Um, yes, I am Victoria. I'm calling in from Los Angeles, where it's still the middle of the day. Um, I was on episode 37, which was about Evening Primrose, Sondheim's TV musical. Um, I've listened to a lot of music this year. That's one thing I can tell you from my Spotify wrapped. But I think one musical that's been on my mind a lot lately, and I think I listened to straight through, not that it's that long a score, probably six or seven times in October and November is Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. It just kind of hit where I needed it at that moment. And um, frankly, anything political has been on my mind this year to some extent, and I think that's most of us. But Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson really spoke to my sort of angst about everything going on in the world. Great. Uh, next, uh, Heath Saunders. Hello. Uh, can you hear me? Is my mic on? Just yep. cool. Um, I'm Heath Saunders. Uh, I'm zooming in from uh, Upper Manhattan in the, in the Washington Heights area. Um, I was on episode, I'm looking at it right now, episode 45, <laughs> which was the illusion of the everyman. Incidentally, largely about Pippin. Go figure. <laughs> um, and I... What have I been thinking about this year? I, I can't think about anything. I don't listen to music. I As a weird thing, I, I, I just don't. Uh, but today, <laughs> I was listening to the score of Promises, Promises. Um, for no good reason. I had, I, I, <laughs> that's, I, I had this, I, I've been thinking about the fact that Sean Hayes sort of sounds like Ben Platt all day. That's what I've been... <laughs> Yeah, no, listen to the revival and you'll hear it. It's in the vibrato it's just the, and the way he attacks ah. melody. It's very interesting, interesting. where I, my brain goes when it's unoccupied. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, last but not least, Bethann Cohen. Um, I know you, mi you missed the beginning, but we are just saying... Uh, let me get that up again. We were just saying uh, our name, what episode we did, where you're zooming in from, and a musical you've been listening to or thinking about a lot this year. Um, so I'm Bethann. I'm zooming in from the Bronx. I As soon as I'm done saying this, I'm going to shut my dog up. Who's, who's... <laughs> but that's my dog Anya, who's named after the character Anya from the Buffy musical, which is what we talked about in our episode. <laughs> and uh, something, I think, uh, something that I've been listening to throughout the pandemic that affected me a lot was the Sondheim birthday special, especially um, Laura Benanti's rendition of um, I Remember Sky. That just... She's got to record that better because I listened to it on my car stereo and the recording quality isn't as good as it deserves to be. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go deal with the dog. <laughs> okay, sounds good. We'll get started also with um, 
just a first kind of question about, you know, if guests, if, if any of you have gotten any feedback on your episodes this year, um, and also kind of, if you've been listening to the podcast, no problem if you haven't, but what have you liked on the podcast this season? Um, just, and what discussions uh, have you found interesting? Um, if someone would like to go first, uh, feel free to just jump in. I gotta say, my podcast episode hit at like the worst time. <laughs> we recorded it on March 2nd. Um, I'm trying to remember when it actually came out, but basically, my mother was running for political office here in my hometown on March 3rd. That was her election day. She lost, and then the mm-hmm. world fell apart. So my mom yeah. kind of won. But the point is that <laughs> episode hit in my life at just like the worst time. Yeah. But at the same time, it was such a fun memory of, you know, for this year, because I was actually hyping. I was doing a live show a few weeks later. Right. That didn't happen, but I've been doing online shows all year long. So oh, nice. I've been doing an online cabaret performer, which was unexpected. But that episode was like the last real thing I did, mm-hmm. which is like the worst timing in the world. <laughs> Yeah, I remember thinking, I, I, I thought about your episode, because it, yeah, it was the one that I, yours and, and Michael Boyd's were the two that I recorded before the pandemic kind of started, but then released after <laughs> the shutdown started, so it was like this weird um, thing, but yours was actually the first one I did, we did on, I don't know if it was Zoom, it was, an, or it was- We used Skype, and it was like primitive. Yeah, because I hadn't because I hadn't even heard of Zoom at that point. Um, But it it was it was a nice uh, introduction to how I was going to do the podcast for the rest of the year. (laughs) So it was good. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone else um, get feedback on or have people talk about your episodes or if you have thoughts on other episodes from from the season? Um, I, 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 there was a, we missed when we did Jerry Herman. Um, I, I'm very sad that, uh, the grand tour we did not include mm-hmm. as one of the musicals that we discussed. Um, it was just timing, but, uh, it, uh, there is some really wonderful music in that. And I, and if you do listen to the <laughs> Jerry Herman episode, I would encourage uh, any listener to also check out, uh, that as well. Oh, that's a good suggestion. I, I didn't, uh, uh, I, I, Again, I don't really listen to things because I'm a <laughs> douche, but if I am very curious about the horror in musical theater episode because I'm like, it's a thing. I'm obsessed with horror and I'm obsessed with musical theater. And it's actually one of the subjects that I was considering talking about for ours because of the. So I'm like, very. Now I'm like looking at this. I'm like, oh, I really want to know. <laughs> you guys talked about slash concluded slash, you know, offered because I have a lot of opinions regarding it. But I don't want to hijack this meeting for us to talk about horror and musical theater. No, well, actually, that's that's um, that was like the first comment. That's the first comment on the on the uh, that we received was about that episode. So we can. Does anyone else want to chime in with their episode before we go into the horror? Yeah, Beth Ann. Oh, no, just about the horror episode. Mm -hmm. Like, I've never even heard of Carrie the Musical, and that Uh episode got me kind of obsessed with that song you talked about. (laughs) Um, I don't even remember what it was called. but And Eve was weak, yeah. (laughs) And Eve was weak, yeah. I mean, that was 
that's quite a song. Wow. Yeah. All right. So I guess this is a good segue into into talking about the horror musical episode. Um, where do we want to start, Jason? Do you want to kind of give an overview for Heath of of kind of what we talked about, if you remember? <laughs> it's funny because I. I definitely came out of that episode thinking, oh, I wanted to say this. Oh, I wanted to say this. <laughs> like, I, there are just so many other things that I felt like I missed and didn't get to, like, yeah. touch on cover and shows and just, like, little nuancey things about, like, the genre and how just it's such a, it, for such a limited, like, subgenre of musical theater, there's just, I feel like, so much to talk about with it because... Right there are the things that borrow the aesthetic to do satire and comedy and camp. There are the things that are actually sincerely trying to do something scary like Sweeney or uh, uh, American Psycho sort of uh, and, and whatnot. And and then there's just, it, it's interesting. I'm just perpetually fascinated by how horror in particular, there's so much can be pulled from well, it's basically just like horror film and brought to the stage to it, it's funny because I think it was something that I was trying to articulate when we were talking about it that I didn't quite get to was that the thing that makes horror and musical theater work together so well when they work together well uh, is the stakes the, 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 with musicals the stakes have to be absurdly high um, for people to sing and with horror the stakes are literally life and death typically and I think that I, that is something that I wanted to say exactly like that <laughs> on our on our podcast, and I, I just didn't quite get to. What would you What would you say is a successful? I mean, when you talk about horror musical theater being successful, how do you define success in relation to horror on stage? I wouldn't put it as because I definitely like I wrote my my thesis for grad school was for for uh, was a horror show was a horror musical psychological horror musical but we were really my collaborator kind of more so than i was was really trying to actually make something that was sincerely scary mm. and i and i kind of have always felt like if that's the end goal that you're gonna get tripped up on the way there like because on one level you don't want to feel like you're assaulting the audience and our show kind of felt like that <laughs> some of our faculty definitely kind of felt that way um, and so I don't think that I think it kind of depends on what you're setting out to do with it because I think I don't think there's anything I don't personally find anything scary about Little Shop of Horrors but I find it it's incredibly successful mm. and then I, I just oh yeah, go ahead. that um, I saw Little Shop of Horrors when I was five mm-hmm. and for years, my entire family would taunt me about how, like, I didn't sleep for a week. I was, it was very, very effective horror. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, they would just say Little Shop of Horrors, and I would, like, squeal and run into a corner. I didn't care so, for that movie as a kid, either. I, I kind of remember that. No, yeah. I loved it, but it oh, was I, so scary. I mean, because of the, because it was scary. <laughs> yeah. I'm not to point out I love that movie. musical is technically a horror musical. Oh, sorry. What did you say, Greg? Oh, I just loved that movie as a kid, but I didn't think of it as scary. Oh, what yeah. I loved were were um, uh, uh, the the street urchins, um, uh, mm-hmm. Ronette, Chiffon, and Crystal, 
uh, you know, coming out in their fabulous Supremes outfits yeah, and being yeah. part of the Greek chorus. Me as a young gay kid found that very, very <laughs> just beautiful. Was very so I just found it to be a weird story. This is a question I was actually going to ask is that when we're talking horror and musicals, are we talking something that just has sort of a gothic theme or something that actually like frightens you like out of your seat? Well, it's funny. I would I would argue that it is actually to to scare someone in a musical is actually like in the way that we think about scary in terms of horror films. It actually I don't think you can do it in a musical because uh, ho uh, horror or at least the experience of fear is actually about tension and it's about holding tension as long as you can. And actually, musical theater I believe does the opposite from a story perspective. It's actually always about breaking tension in order. Yes song uh which means part of the leading question that i was sort of asking you is is i actually think that there is the closest thing to an effective true horror musical is arguably sweeney todd but i even think that sweeney todd fails quite miserably when it comes to sweeney todd is at its best when it's actually operating like a musical comedy not like it's trying to actually create tension and hold tension through a long period of time. And I would argue that that's actually part of the challenge with the second act of Sweeney Todd is that if you see it in, in the sort of deconstruct, you know, this thing with Sondheim shows in the last 15, 20 years where we've loved to deconstruct them and be like, we're just going to sing the text and it's going to be whatever the experience of it is, which is, I have, you know, a thesis about that, but <laughs> the, there's something really interesting about Sweeney Todd. It, if you, if anybody saw this, the recent revival at Barrow Street, that act two was really hard because it actually doesn't really make any sense if you don't already know what's going on because de deconstructing the thing in order sort of to sort of do the like, we're actually going to deal with the psychological tension of what's going on here actually makes it so the plot becomes almost inscrutable if you don't already know the the sort of set mm. of things that are happening but that ends up putting in this us in this really interesting space for musical theater which is like the exploration of psychological breakdown is actually a really interesting thing and can be done very very effectively in musical theater which i think is the other side of of horror which is like what is what is the sort of deep darkness at the center of humanity that i think can be explored in musical theater really 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 well which for me is actually where it goes into this space of this question about like, is the point of horror to be actually scary as an experience for the audience? And at which point I would say musical theater has, I have never had an experience of musical theater outside of, you know, being not to dis disparage being five and watching a, a, a musical because there are things that are scary. Like I'm terrified of Sweeney Todd on principle. When I was a 10 and I found out that it was a musical, I was like, I will never watch this. I'm terrified. And then I found out that I was like, oh, it's actually, you know, Sorry. But is that? But is that? But this gets back into my whole thing about like classifying things in genre. Like, is that horror? Because Sweeney Todd, in the subtitle, it says a musical thriller, hmm. and it is definitely a thriller. It is a high stakes, you know, uh, story about murder and crime, and you know, uh, with with a very you know uh, compelling plot. I don't think that it's necessarily trying to be a horror show, though. I mean, with the film version, when you hear the skulls crack on the cement when they go from the from the chair down into the basement, that's kind of gruesome. But I don't know if that's scary. I the, I will say the first time I listened to the Sweeney Todd soundtrack, I did jump out of my seat a little at one point. It was the first time that factory whistle. The whistle. That's that, the, that sound, scares me every time. It's jarring. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, I have a few things about Sweeney Todd. First mm -hmm. of all, try listening to that first whistle when you have a tiny little Yorkie sitting on you. Uh, <laughs> definitely that whistle is very effective, but I think there, that there was some pretty effective horror 
first of all, I think one of the most horrifying aspects of the show, and and certainly there's a lot of tension there, is um, in terms of will will he or won't he kill Joanna? Joanna? Mm-hmm. And I think that that there's a lot of really effective tension building in that, and I think probably in the film, which you know has some good and bad points. The most effective moment for that of that for me was um, in the scene when he's you know killing all the people and then he goes to cut somebody's throat but instead starts shaving and it's just like a fabulous moment of pretty women yeah. I don't know. sequence yeah 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 it's in the pretty women sequence well it's uh, a- and yeah. the thing is going part on- of that is but also part of it is is the music and and how that works. Oh, Victoria, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I'm kind of intrigued by what Heath is saying, too, because I see sort of two different sides to this. On the one hand, we have straight up horror. We have shows like Carrie, which is terrifying if you don't know any better and you try to watch the destruction on YouTube at 2 a.m. We have genuinely terrifying scenes in musicals, but then we also have this kind of more psychological side. And I would think, based on Heath's argument, to him, the scariest musical would actually be Follies. Follies Mm -hmm. is a breakdown. And it's several breakdowns in one. And I think the most recent revival really took advantage of the fact that it was a theater being torn down and made the whole theater part of, I mean, at least here in Los Angeles, I can't speak to the way it looked in New York or DC, but we had the entire theater decorated like it was about to be torn down. Mm -hmm. And just to really think about that menacing, haunting sense of the past combined with this present that is very time constrained it's a tense experience. So I would think to heat maybe the scariest musical is Follies. <laughs> well, I think is that I, it's not, I would never argue that that one can't be scared in the theater. It's actually for me about a fundamental definition of what a horror film is doing, what it's trying mm-hmm. to do. Because I would argue that again, in the sort of history of horror films, like there are horror films like uh, Hostel, which I would argue isn't actually scary as it much, it, it literally is just brutal for two hours it's just a two hours of brutality and that becomes you know within this sort of horror genre and sort of film horror this goes into the world of what torture porn is and like how how sort of gruesomeness is a way of making an audience have a specific visceral response to things it is interesting because like i think that my argument is more that what you can achieve in a film what you can achieve in horrific storytelling in film is fundamentally different than what you can achieve in a musical and i think that if you set out and this is sort of why i asked the question which is like what do you think a successful horror musical is because if if the if the genre is defined by by film it's sort of hard to translate it. If you define the horror genre by like literary horror, it actually is act it that you it it falls into a bit of a easier time of like, oh, the direct one-to-one experience is easier to sort of compare. While doing a shocking thing like putting a the the train whistle at the the, the factory whistle at the beginning of Sweeney Todd is actually a jump scare in the context of the theater. It is, you're like everybody's sitting here and then suddenly there's this really loud noise. Scaring people like that is actually not impossible to do in the theater. And but but if you like think about there uh the woman in uh the woman in black recent this last year was actually a really interesting theater experience for me because it was the closest to being scary I've mm-hmm. actually had in a theater experience. Because when we're when we're sort of in a shared like we're all suspending disbelief it's actually for for me at, as a when i'm looking for scary like a horror film that 
I don't think that that can be really achieved in the live theater experience because of the sort of shared delusion that we're all taking part. Well, there's a difference. There's a difference between what when you're thinking of film or even even novels, you know, and the theater, especially musical theater. There's a difference in verisimilitude because when you, the film is literally what the camera's eye sees, and visually, you know, with uh, uh, musically, uh, with sound effects, you know, they can really you know jolt you. In the theater, and especially in the musical, you've got an opening musical number. People are singing. We are not in real life. We know that from the beginning of the play. This is not a, a, a trying to represent what's really happening. Usually what I, I find, at least in horror films, they try to represent, you know, really, you know, normal life, and then something totally batshit happens, and it scares the bejesus out of you. The one time I, I can point to that I was in the theater and I jumped out of my seat in fear of something was when I saw... Do you know the play The Pillow yeah. Man by um, uh, Madonna? There was a mo- the, the 2005 or 2004 production that was yeah. on Broadway. There's a moment where it, like, with the lighting and with the sound effect and with um, the actor in the bed upstairs, like, it were just jump cuts to them almost as if you would in a film. And it, li- it literally made me jump out of my seat scared. Um, that's the only time I've ever seen that. And, and I think it worked, it worked because it was a play, because nobody was singing beforehand. And I think that music and especially singing actors might cut the tension a little more uh, than uh, than a, uh, a, a horror film would I, otherwise. I, first of all, Pillow Man is amazing and everyone should find a way to <laughs> see it. But um, I do think we have to be a little bit precious, uh, careful how precious we are with the definition of horror because horror is huge. And like saying this is or is not horror, I mean, that's like a whole other podcast. There's so many genres within horror and, and so many different ways of it being. So, um, like, yeah, I don't know how much we can define what horror is other than defining what a horror musical is. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I always think of horror in the terms of scary movies, and I'm not a scary movie fan at all. Um, but I, I think that sometimes people uh, extend it to sort, sort of gothic themes and things like that. I have yet to see a, a good musical about vampires. Let me put it that <laughs> um, Like, I, 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 I just... Have you seen the Buffy musical? Well, that's, that's television. That's different. Uh, I, I, I just don't think things translate. That's a personal opinion. Right, but- well, I did love, someone asked Shoshana, a question, a listener, about the horror musicals and mentioned that the crucifixion scene in Jesus Christ Superstar was terrifying. And then the finale of Evita, which without spoiling, although really can you spoil like a 40-year-old musical, <laughs> um, at the very end, we leave on kind of this menacing note that actually Ava's body disappeared, which is true. I, of course, ran and looked it up as soon as I first heard it. The thing is, those are somewhat terrifying moments. The crucifixion, I think, is terrifying just in sort of its depiction of what's going on but that final moment in Uvita like that's an extremely shocking and powerful thing to leave on because you have this whole musical about this woman who rises to the top of power and how beloved she is and all that and then in the end she's dead and lost I mean she's and it's a true story she truly was lost spirited out of the country wound up in Italy I think she was eventually returned to Argentina, but it was truly a mystery. And it's a very menacing, haunting ending. This sort of like, whoa, she's just a missing corpse like anyone could be. Yeah, I, I think it's really it's really amazing to, and this again is for me part of the reason that I jump, this is where I begin, is that I'm like, the, the genre that is horror and the genre that are that is musical theater, I think have a lot of things in common. 
which is they actually both ask the audience to suspend their disbelief in an extreme way. There's in both contexts, we're dealing with uh, a sub a subgenre of art that has a lot of things that are associated with that subgenre. And if you don't know about the things that are that subgenre's tricks and tips, you will actually be lost in the uh, in its genre i often say this for people who like don't watch horror movies it's always really interesting to see their reaction to modern horror because modern horror is so self-referential it is actually almost every horror movie now at least references one other horror movie that previously existed and i would argue that musical theater actually does a very similar thing which is a sort of insular self-referential uh relationship to its own genre and i'm deeply fascinated that that with the with people who try and fold the two things together because it's not to say that i think it's impossible i think that there are wonderful again for all the ways i can criticize like you're saying like that you can criticize anything you can say sweeney todd is or isn't horror you can say carrie is or isn't horror you can say it is or isn't scary and that for me is like eh, okay maybe it is maybe it's not people have are scared by different things some people find the idea of aliens coming in and, and, and abducting them horrifying and other people might see the fourth kind and be like this is not scary at all so this is, what is actually scary becomes really really uh, context specific to the person but i am really interested in the sort of the overlapping of genre and what it, what it means within that each each genre to sort of be respectful to the history of that genre and when that overlaps with musical theater i think that it's really really challenging to be referential or reverent to the things that make horror what we now understand modern horror to be mm-hmm. it's hard to be to achieve those things in a musical and i i think that that's that's not actually bad and i actually think that that shows like american psycho for me i actually thought american psycho was far more successful at what it was doing than i think people thought it was but i think that has a lot to do with the fact that people were coming in and they were not prepared for the art form that it was actually referencing so if you didn't understand the horror genre the history of the horror musical the history of the horror of horror literary specifically with american psycho the actual book if you didn't understand if your only understanding of american psycho was the movie then what was trying to be achieved in the musical becomes it becomes it fails at what it's trying to do because you don't have the context with which to watch the thing and i think that that's a really fat i think that this is true across we can we can jump from horror musicals into basically any musical and say if you're actually not uh, uh, looking at the context for the genre for the specific thing that is trying to be made what's being presented to you it becomes really hard to assess it it becomes hard to like create a rubric to say this is good or this is bad or this is successful or this is unsuccessful or mm-hmm. I like this or I don't and I think that horror that discussion of horror is a really well I think Bethany you're really right it's like hard, how do you define what makes something horror how do you define what makes something a musical whether whether something's a musical or an opera when something is presented in an opera house often the musical is unsuccessful because what, what the audience is expecting is a referential and a reverence for the opera art form and the musical often rejects a lot of those things even in the, all the ways that they're actually similar it's it's a sort of wonder- this is very random but when you talked about because I don't really watch, I watch a lot of horror, I don't watch so much torture porn horror, but when you mentioned torture porn, all I could think of was the opera Tristan and Isolde, where there's like an hour and a half long act that is a death scene. <laughs> I mean, so there's nothing really new under the sun. <laughs> yeah. And Wagner and, and his whole 
aesthetic is its its own thing. It's like total, yeah. <laughs> I think that where horror and musical theater are at odds with each other is is and, and where it becomes a real a challenge to create a horror musical is that so much of horror in any form, like the literary, the film, the television, tends to be tends to begin in an inactive place, like that you have protagonists to, to whom something is going to happen that aren't going, they're not going to make things happen. They're going to start out just kind of hanging out until, oh, I moved into this house and there's ghosts. Oh, I went on this trip and we ended up on a murder island or something like that. And to be to try to create an active protagonist in a horror musical, you have to either sometimes like, you, you, you worry about going into that that almost like that Buffy musical play stuff, and I'm doing stuff today. Like you, <laughs> you, you kind of start to um, fear that you're going to either venture into camp, and if you're going to commit to that, you're going to have to commit to that. Or, and it, it, but if you want to actually do something dramatic and something a little bit more layered, you it, it's a really challenging like line to uh, to walk. Yeah, musicals in which the protagonist, that it's basically things happen to the protagonist rather than the protagonist having something that they're trying to do. I think that's a really, really effective uh, assessment of the, of the genre and sort of what, what musicals can and can't achieve. Can't. Uh, Rachel, uh, you were going to say something? Oh, well, I think, I think it was very clarifying, Heath, what you said about sort of the, the layers of the horror genre, because I am one of those people who does not really watch horror movies. Although lately I've fallen down this rabbit hole of uh, campy, like low budget ones from the 80s and 90s. Um, but as you say, those are commenting on things that I'm not familiar with. Um, and I was wondering if, uh, but okay, but I respond very strongly to something like Sweeney Todd, but I don't respond strongly to uh, like meta horror musicals all that often, unless they're incredibly well-written. And I wondered if it was because over the last generation or so, we have this hyperabundance of meta musicals that are always self-referential, like to the point where the meta story and the references are more important than the, the story itself. Um, and I, so yes, thank you for untangling that for me. Um, and I was also going to say that the scariest musical, and perhaps this is because I don't know the horror canon all that well, um, and because I am used to people sort of laughing at horror musicals, but I was terrified by the Who's Tommy when I was a kid. Um, I guess I saw it when I was too young to see it, but the Ken Russell film adaptation of it is terrifying to me, um, to the point where when I saw it, the the production in the 90s that was live that was touring i had to leave the theater during certain points even though they were staged i'm sure nothing like the way that it was filmed but because it was this sort of grotesque carnival of adult narcissism and selfishness and endless brutality i was like oh that's scarier than you know people cutting each other up in fake blood all over the stage like I, that i can handle this is too much. Um, so yeah. Yeah, that's that's a the the who's Tommy is a that's an amazing 
I didn't wouldn't even have thought about that. That's a that because it's like the this the that's like psychological horror. Like you know, uh, a little bit about what you were saying, Jason. That's like that's a that's a real ex- examination of the the horrors of the psyche. And I think that 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 is actually achievable on stage. I, it's not so. I, I I'm sort of walking back on my initial thing where it's like you can't be scary on stage. I think that it's just like what what you're trying to achieve for the audience experience. I think is just very different. I use as a really a specific example of that is is actually the movie Scream, which if you don't understand what the movie Scream is, which is in fact a send up of slasher, the slasher genre which of course happened in the early 90s, which is after the, the sort of stream of movies in the 80s, the B, 80s B-movies and, and what made horror in the 80s was like, oh, now this person's a zombie and they like turn into a black of blood or body horror. We actually ended up in this new era after the, the advent of the movie Scream where it was actually about playing with the tension of what the audience actually thinks is going on versus what's actually happening in the thing. And again, I think that that actually happens, uh, like you were saying, Rachel, like a show like uh, uh, Something Rotten, I think is a really specific example of that happening where the show itself is writing a line of what what you understand a musical to be and what the actual, the true story at the heart of it actually is. And it actually does this wonderful job of writing that line. I personally don't like it because my aesthetic is is such that I have a really hard time engaging with material that does that but i can also look at it and be like i think this does this very effectively it sets out to lovingly send up a whole genre a whole history a whole thing and 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 it does so in a way that i think is actually very effective for better or for worse whether you think that's like good for musicals or bad for musicals it's like it does what it sets out for something and it goes for it can i just quickly say that bethan's dog is like the cutest thing (laughs) I've seen in a while. <laughs> well, he, wandered, he wandered over, so I thought I would introduce Sweeney, and he doesn't want to be here anymore, so I'm going to let him go. <laughs> Love Sweeney. Um, if you don't mind, maybe looking towards, forward toward the next season, it occurs to me horror is kind of this through line. There's always been horror. There will always be horror. And it will always be not the main form of entertainment. It'll be a thing for, like, some people. But it occurs to me, like, you know, back in the 50s, the main form of of entertainment was the Western. And there were, like, a couple Western musicals. And I'm just, like, waiting for there to be, like, a huge string of superhero musicals. And there, (laughs) you know, there was one that didn't didn't come off so well and and uh that's my i'm not the person to do this episode but my proposal for another episode <laughs> is like musicals as a reflection of pop culture that's good that's good periods. greg you're well, gonna say if you're talking if you're talking golden age of musicals, there's a musical called It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, I which they did that at, was uh, fantastic. At, uh, at Encores. Uh, yeah, how many years ago? Years old, Five or so, yeah. Well, there yeah. is a huge opening now, because when you think about it, Disney has really cleaned up on Broadway. And they own Marvel, and they also own a decent portion of whatever Fox had, which I believe includes... I'm not really much of a superhero aficionado, so I can't speak to all the different canons, but we've seen... Disney owning so much of this material, we've seen Disney taking to the theater and doing amazing things. So it would not shock me if somewhere in a corner or perhaps in a Zoom, much like this one, 
there are Disney execs pitching, you know, like the Avengers, the musical, which when I think of that, I always think of the Fantastic Four musical from Arrested Development. But there is also merit to the idea of like a super, the only challenge. And I think for those of us who really watched Spider-Man not exactly fly the way we all anticipated, it's a very expensive undertaking. And will you get the people who love those movies into a theater? I was just thinking when you said I, I do just, just putting my putting my producer. Hold on, uh, Greg, go ahead. <laughs> well, just just real quickly, just as you said that, I was just putting my producer hat on, and I'm thinking I don't want to raise money for a musical like that. That's going to be millions and millions <laughs> of dollars, and the, the return on investment is in no way guaranteed. So, uh, and especially after uh, the shutdown, so I, I I don't I don't foresee a whole lot of Marvel uh, coming to Broadway, but I could be wrong. So. I think that the the the, pro the problem is that that what you actually this is actually a similar a similar uh, conundrum with the horror thing which is like why people read or consume stories about superheroes is a very specific thing when you go to see the avengers you're actually going part of the experience of seeing the avengers is seeing people with superpowers roll out in a relatively realistic environment and in fact do the things it's really interesting to look at the musical it's a bird it's a plane it's superman because it's not about superman really at all superman basically doesn't appear on stage because if you actually tried to be like the story of this show is this man doing superhuman feats you actually end up in a space where musical theater is not the medium with which to achieve that experience so i don't think that it's necessarily impossible to do a story about superheroes but i think that it would actually have to operate very very differently than the way we actually see superhero movies of unfold in, in a realistic you have to remember that it's a bird's plane superman also came out at a time when they didn't have a whole lot of you know uh, stage uh craft that would allow for it right um, i'm looking i'm looking at the live facebook uh comments while this comes <laughs> oh out. good so, you mentioned um fortress of solitude uh, another mention was the harry potter plays uh that we had you know it is possible to do some of these magical elements on stage I, but i i, I want to defend spider-man just for a second which is to say I saw it with a friend who sees very little theater and we were like in the third row and the magic that I, I mean, we're both adults, but there was a certain level of magic that we experienced in the theater and um, it was pretty fun. But anyway, so many people said bad things about Spider-Man. I want to say a nice thing. <laughs> that I actually, I'm, I'm trying, what I'm trying to sort of do is basically, again, create a rubric with which we assess the piece of art that we're looking at. So Brooklyn, Brooklynite is another example, Fortress of Solitude. These are all examples of shows that actually study superhumanness as a part of the story, which I'm saying, I'm not trying to say that there's like untouchable content in theater. And in fact, what I think makes theater really great is really inventive ways of of achieving certain experiences. The problem is that I'm trying to point to is that even in this discussion, that we began this with being like a super a superhero story would be expensive. It is only expensive is if what you believe you're trying to do is have a person literally fly on stage. But that is not necessarily what you would necessarily what you would want to do if you're going to try and do Fortress of Solitude isn't really about that. It's it's using this sort of story thing as a as a way of 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 entering a really interesting human, deeply human, deeply emotional uh, story. Which again, this applies to horror because if you think the point of horror is to scare the audience, then I think that you're gonna not succeed in a theatrical context. Harry Potter is a really great example 
Harry Potter, the I would argue that the play Harry Potter is at its least successful when it's trying to do magic on stage. What it's at its best is actually the way that the transitions happen and the way that this, there's these hyper simple stage illusions that happen that are actually all part of the storytelling that are part of this sort of I mean, these things that happen, there's these amazing visual things that happen, but that's actually like watching steam come out of Scorpius's ears is not as interesting as like, think about the fact that have we all seen the Harry Potter play? Um, no, no. Uh, there's a there's a moment the, the basically the climax of the show is done in such a way that you don't actually watch it it's not it doesn't happen on stage you watch the human characters on stage watching it mm. and that for me is like that's a really insightful really theatrical deeply theatrical way to tell this story and i think that where we will fail is if musical theater tries to do cinematic storytelling as though that's what people come to the theater for. I think uh, that ties into when I was talking about Act Two of Into the Woods. They look up at the giant, but you don't really necessarily see. Well, um, what I was thinking is yeah. also, um, what I think the challenges with superheroes is we're talking about kind of two different issues. There is the issue of making a superhero musical independently creatively not thinking as much about the like mainstream stuff that i think is fascinating and i agree with what you're saying Heath. i think that you don't have to have a big budget i think where my attention automatically went as a californian who works in film as well was the big stuff and you're not going to do the avengers musical without a massive budget because if you tried to and you weren't disney you'd be sued to the point that you would pretend you'd wish you had the massive budget so i think you're actually right and I think my point was coming more from a mainstream contemporary hero perspective where everyone's talking about, you know, a certain set of IP that is not going to be cheap. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to I wanna pivot a little bit so we have time to get to other stuff. Um, no, before we pivot, oh, I yeah. just want to put a qualifier in because somebody said something. Uh, when I said I've never seen a good uh, musical about vampires, I mean, I've never seen a good musical about vampires that wasn't intended to be a comedy or satire. Uh, okay. <laughs> so um I, yeah i just want to pivot a little bit but first i want to acknowledge um we referenced don sanborn's comment um from before about about horror musicals and the horror songs that he mentioned so i wanted to acknowledge his comment um yeah and i think um i think a segue could be uh my so this question is from wendy greenberg who, full disclosure, is my mother, but is also a very uh, active listener of the podcast. And I know that, you know, she watched Evening Primrose as uh, a young girl um, on TV. And she actually mentioned that show as something that had scared her at the time. Um, and I think there's also an element of theater that... Um, and this TV, what TV used to be, because this was a TV musical, that um, you it, it you can't go back to it. Like it always just kind of exists in a like place in your mind, um, which is like a you know very the like part of theater, a very theatrical thing. And that's what TV used to be. So for years, she you know she saw this on TV as a little kid and could never come back to it until much much later when it started being available in other places um and now it's just you can watch it on youtube like it's no big deal um but so she said and i think this kind of 
goes into a little bit of what we were already talking about. So uh, years later, you know, she had discovered the songs again and enjoyed them, you know, sung by, by, you know, even more singers, better singers. And she's asking, can you envision, especially now, new musicals written especially for television and what would make them successful in that medium? And uh, are there any already out there that you could think of would fit you know, this criteria? I think what we would more likely see today is either a streaming service that does something with musicals or like we've seen for several years now, YouTube musicals. I mean, I think mm. going back to Harry Potter, I mean, a very Potter musical made its bread and butter and success off YouTube. And while I think there could be a place for television musicals, my guess is that it would be more likely that original content like that would come from an internet-based mm-hmm. situation, whether it's independent stuff on YouTube or on Vimeo, or if it's in some way produced by, like, say, Hulu or Netflix or Amazon. But I think there's a place for that. And I think recently there's been a lot of reminiscing about Cinderella from 1997, which is a favorite of mine. Unfortunately, one of the actresses who played one of the stepsisters passed away. Um, But it's brought a lot of reminiscing, and that was such a significant part of the childhoods of my generation that I think a lot of people would like to see, which it wasn't original, but more of that kind of thing, where, you know, they take a beloved, someone takes a beloved story and puts it out there in a new and unexpected way. Uh, A perfect example of that, and I don't know, you know, where you draw the lines between what and what, but another thing that I've listened to a lot over the past couple months is I've gotten into Todrick Hall, and he did this thing uh, straight out of Oz, which is like a really creative autobiographical spin on The Wizard of Oz. And it's very visual, and it's all the things that a musical is kind of, except not quite. Uh, So I think there are a lot of different ways that musicals are coming out. Yeah, and it kind of um, goes goes with, you know, just how musicals have been produced this year on on various platforms uh we talked rachel dean and i you know we talked about that a bit in um you know our in the episode that we did just recently just about stuff that's musicals that have come out this year on on various uh on various platforms there's a lot of that and there are actually a lot of people who are looking at next year i speak from the sort of performer side on this one about basically not intending to make it back to theater so quickly, which is, I hate saying that it's, it's really hard for me to say that I want to be in a theater, (laughs) but we've been doing online. I can speak for myself. I did my first online show on March 22nd. That was my Sondheim birthday show. And um, I've been doing it ever since. And I've had friends in other parts of the community who started doing their online shows in that period as well. I just think as we move further and further online, this becomes a reality. It would not shock me if someone came up with like Zoom the musical and it was filmed just like this and followed, you know, the lives of a bunch of people in an office or something. I'm making this up, but I'm sure it's coming. There, there are already Zoom Zoomsicles, people are calling them. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, go. Wow. I'm even I'm even writing one right now. It's, it's a song cycle. It's not a full musical, but I intend. I love it. That. So, yeah. Yeah, 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 and. Uh, any any other thoughts on on uh, musical theater on on various platforms? Uh, you know, well, I think, we, oh sorry, sorry uh, Rachel, go ahead. Sorry. Oh well, I mean, are we talking 
technically about like a feature length musical, but that is created for television because like I, I've recently rewatched Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which I think has all of the hallmarks of good musical theater writing, but it's episodic and it's a series. So I guess it just depends on what our criteria are, but that's been going on. I mean, that's over already. And there are other things that are following in its footsteps. Yeah. I, uh, I, I love television musicals, but usually, usually they're just uh, self-contained specials. Um, mm -hmm. Musical theater in, in episodic television hasn't usually fared well, very well. I've never watched, uh, I never watched Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I never watched, what's the other one that's still on? Zoe's? Oh, oh Extraordinary Playlist. Uh, yeah, it is a little different. That, but, I, mm -hmm. but I did watch all two seasons of Smash. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, and, and I loved it. And, 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 but the thing is that what was difficult with that show, and I think a part of the reason why it didn't have a longer life, um, was because I because it was about the making of one musical and you can only have however many songs in a score of an actual show that's going to Broadway so they had to repeat songs and put them in different dramatic contexts I thought it worked uh, but uh, but uh, as television musical specials the, the old ones that they used to do back in the uh, 80s and 90s and before then uh, were my favorite I just wa I just rewatched speaking of Jerry Herman Mrs. Santa Claus which was a made for TV uh, musical special starring Angela Lansbury with a Jerry Herman score, um, and I, I I think they work very well. But I think it's it it, it they also when we're talking about those kinds of specials, uh, they also are still have a theatricality theatrical sort of sensibility about them, uh, rather than really really leaning into the form that they're using of television or you know Zoom. I I, I would argue that that television musicals and and indeed what makes television musicals and the challenge with making television musicals now is that television as again as a medium uh it asks for a sort of cinematic realisticness to what it's doing i would argue that crazy ex-girlfriend doesn't operate like a musical because it actually does a thing that happens in television all the time which is that there must be a a reason why a character is singing Crazy Ex-Girlfriend defines a reason why the character is singing, which is that she's quite literally insane. And it she actually hears things as musicals. It is, I, I think that one of the things that we've lost in our ability to talk about musical theater is the idea that a musical theater piece, the reason that people sing is because it's literally a musical. It's not because <laughs> the person is feeling something or has to express things in song. It's literally that is the nature of this medium. The problem that I have with most television adaptations is that they actually work to justify why a character might be singing. Smash works because it actually works to say these characters are singing for X, Y, and Z reasons. And it fails when it sort of blurs the line in a way that it's like, why this, this piece, the thing that is Smash, the multiple seasons of Smash, doesn't work to justify itself why the medium is working the way it does and i think that that's a thing that is a failure a failure to launch of it so with with things like glee glee like made this whole theatrical it's hyper theatrical it is very much that but the story of glee is about actual singers and this actually works backward onto the stage in a lot of ways uh, with, with jukebox musicals the way that we approach telling stories about people on stage in a jukebox musical often is just being like these characters sing because they are singers um this is the thing that i have with a star is born that i'm like a star is born is not actually 
doesn't operate like a musical theater piece because in it the characters are singing because they are singing it is not that they're singing because this is an operatic style in which characters actually convey story through the act of singing which has nothing to do with the character in real there's a word for this and it is literally out of my brain right now. diegetic is the word you're looking for one diegetic singing and for, for me that that's like one of our failures to launch on with musical theater on television is that television executives appear to be obsessed with why people are singing and they appear to want to justify that and i think we're getting this really sort of lucky moment with with an adaptation of something like the prom say what you will about this adaptation say what you will about the show the prom at least it's actually a musical. Like it is actually a, a show in which characters, and, and again, the prom has a little bit of the, the horror genre where it's self-referential to its, in its own like stacking of, 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 uh, of lineage, artistic lineage as it were, um, which again, you can say is great or bad or whatever you feel about that. But I think that this, this is what I'm hoping for in the future is that we actually, people are actually making musicals on television like you can make a show in which characters sing because it's a musical rather than having to justify why any character might sing at any moment which is what it feels like is the truth for basically all musical uh, shows in which people sing well, I just, I just okay. watched and loved. Um, if anyone is interested in a Christmassy TV type musical on Netflix, um, Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square, which stars <laughs> Christine Baranski and was directed by Debbie Allen. Um, and it's just straight up singing and fun most of the way through. And what I really liked was there was never any sense that it took itself seriously or like particularly seriously. It was really just about having a good time. I mean, Christine Baranski basically said in an interview, she really wanted to work with Dolly Parton and it was a dream come true. And Debbie Allen wanted to work with Dolly Parton. And so it was really about just having a blast. And I think as TV type musicals go in the last few years, it was very successful in that regard because they were just doing a musical. I mean, suddenly they're sitting in church and they're singing. Suddenly someone's doing someone's hair and is singing and they're just singing because Dolly Parton wrote a song to go there. And it was, I, I recommend it if you just want to see something like that, because that is exactly what I think you're talking about. Uh, and also part of part right. of this is is setting expectations right when you go to see a musical in the theater you know you you walk into that theater into that space you know knowing what to expect the thing about when i was talking about verisimilitude earlier when when you have a camera the camera doesn't it's not a proscenium stage we don't see just flats and you know lights above them and the back wall and everything else and we we, we aren't filling in the gaps the camera fills in the gaps for us and because the verisimilitude is so accurate to, to actual life uh, people started bur bursting into songs somehow feels corny or inappropriate or incongruous. And, um, and I think that, that a lot of writers and a lot of directors, in a way to you know, ease people into that, try to give you, as, as Hifa was saying, you know, a, a reason or, or just or, or rationale for these people to, uh, to be bursting into song rather than in a musical theater piece where we so just sort of accept it as part of the language of the storytelling. Uh, Beth Ann, you were going to say I, something? I yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily think that diegetic or non-diegetic is necessarily better than, than non. And in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, they really only explain why the singing is happening in the last season. I mean, it's not, it is pretty much just people bursting into song with no explanation. And they somewhat retrofit an explanation for it later on, but it's, even that doesn't really work because there are plenty of scenes that she's not in where other people are singing. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, the fact is putting on a weekly so when you have a musical episode of a show, of course you have to explain why they're singing because they don't usually sing. So then you have to like retrofit some idea. And um, <clears throat> I think back back at the Paley Center, I watched, I don't know, however many episodes we watched of, of Cop Rocks, which is, again, given a really bad rap, but it tried really hard. And uh, Shangri-La Plaza, like... <laughs> These are like flat out musicals that basically work, but to sustain something like that with, you know, all new music and full on musical episodes every episode, it's just monumental. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, Prince Eric's Girlfriend had maybe two at the most three songs per episode. So, yeah, I think my my kind of thought on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend was that it was more like based on the uh, musical sketch comedy kind of turned into a TV show, whereas something that's kind of what it felt like to me, as opposed to like actual, like uh, a more uh, fleshed out, uh, the opposite of sketch, <laughs> musical, uh, musical uh, in in that genre. Um, yeah. Anyone else have have thoughts? I was just gonna say I think that a show that does and it helps because it's animation that uh, for whatever reason that Bob's Burgers will just drop a song in the middle of an episode, <laughs> no explanation for it is just what is happening at that point and move on from it and and I think that they do they do the musical thing very well because a they're not do, they're not making this it's not a joke that they're singing it it's, tends to be an actually real important character moment of the show and the songwriting is usually really great uh and speaking of amazing christmas specials their christmas special from like two years ago is absolutely spectacular and it's a full-on musical like it is i think, I think the animation helps that though doesn't it absolutely i think that that it's the animation that helps them get away with it i can't imagine the live action show where <laughs> They just kind of drop in the song every once in a while. And again, again, I, I keep saying verisimilitude, but that, that again, we know this is not really that we're looking at. You can look at you can look at the sort of the the golden age of Disney, which is actually part of the reason that I think Disney sh- shows, for lack of a better way to describe this, tend to translate to the stage, kind of well. I mean, if you've seen anything about Howard Ashman or or Glenn Slater or or Alan Menken they were actually making musicals like what the the golden age of disney those animated films are all musicals they operate like musicals they have uh, they they like structurally they're like this protagonist sings this song where this protagonist would sing a song in a musical and they were actually very much coming they were bringing what was musical theater into that thing and that became definitional for that thing but i but but like you're saying jason i i i the the reference point of it being animation is hugely important when it comes to like this verisimilitude that you're talking about like it being not people is super helpful for the audience witnessing singing like and 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 for me like i'm i have a whole soapbox about this idea specifically which is like I believe that we are doing ourselves a disservice as musical theater writers when we try and justify singing, that when we make the writing of musicals about justifying the singing, and I, w- I would argue this at the extremity of saying things like, hey, 
when I literally, I, when I, <laughs> I, just, I yell this at my students all the time or, or when I'm working with actors and I'm talking about like, people are like, why do you sing? And they're like, well, you sing because you, you know, you can't speak anymore. And that's what, why a person sings. And I'm like, that, that notion is actually not helpful to us when it comes to the creation of musical theater. That is a really helpful thing as an actor dealing with things that you have to make a realistic jump into song for whatever reason you do. As a writer, I'm very against the notion that we should be setting up, teeing up the idea that people are singing as part of the storytelling process, because I believe that's what we actually, when we think about the structure of an opening number, when we think about the structure of an I Want song, what those things are doing is actually what I call structural exposition, which is saying, this is how this story is going to unfold in front of your face, which has very little to do with why a character does what they're doing, but instead, this is the language language of this piece of art that I'm making. And that for me is what's important about, and if you, again, tracking back to the golden age of musical theater, if we think about things like, oh, what a beautiful morning, which people cite all the time as like, a musical that begins without a big opening number. Even in that moment, Oklahoma is folding in the idea that a character, the first thing a character does is sing. So we're actually building into the expositional. We're saying in this context, in this world that we are in, characters are going to do these things in order to tell story to you. And I'm, I'm obsessed with that line. That for me is what makes musical theater interesting, what makes musical theater so juicy to me. And, that, and this like idea, I think speaking to what you were saying, Beth Ann, which is like the attempt to define why that's happening is really useful, but only in, like, in isolation to the thing you're doing. It's not like in musicals, X, Y, and Z things must be true. In a, any musical theater, this is why a person must do it, which is why I think diegetic versus non-diegetic isn't really the point. It's just you have to choose how you're telling that story. This this piece of, 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 of storytelling has to choose why it's doing what it's doing, and it has to educate the audience however they're going to do that. I, I do think that the line between kind of cartoons, Simpsons, Bob's Burgers type thing, and sitcoms is kind of blurred. And I think that Crazy Ex-Girlfriend was kind of the natural next step of that. But I always think of um, on 30 Rock, there's this moment right before the writer's strike started, where everybody just uh, slipped into Midnight Train to Georgia with no explanation. And it was just so perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like just woven into the show and community does a lot of things like that too where just like i i don't watch bob's burgers but i would just, I guess that the singing on community is kind of similar to that where it's like just all of a sudden something you get to a place and it's like well now there's gonna be a song or you know they with that 30 rock episode though they fold it in underscoring comes in before they ever start singing so you're yeah that was beautifully done i thought um, and, you know, music is so much a part of that show, I think, because of, uh, well, I guess Tina's husband was the uh, composer for the show, too. So it's like, it, it always, it always, wasn't there also a song about Cleveland? <laughs> yeah. There were a lot of songs. Over a montage, though. Yeah. They always did. And I think that's part of why Jane Krakowski made so much sense as Jenna, as much as we don't have to get into 30 Rock, as much as Rachel Dratch was the original Jenna, Jane Krakow yeah. brought this musical talent and this theater pedigree that nobody else in the cast really had. And she was able to, I mean, that woman sang constantly on that show and on Ally McBeal previously, so. And it really worked, you know, and mm -hmm. it just, 
I think that that's an excellent way to see music on, I mean, and it wasn't like a musical show exactly, but it, you know, there are all these moments like that. Mm -hmm. They're very theatrical people, and especially Jenna did not let the fact that she was living in quote-unquote real life stop her from singing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Does any, oh, go ahead, Greg. She also said the Tonys should add an award for living theatrically, really. (laughs) (laughs) But we even, you know, and it's also really interesting to think about about tone stuff in general, which is like, is the tone of theory rock one in which that we're supposed to believe that these are real people behaving realistically, mm-hmm. which I would argue is absolutely not the case, as is true for many sitcoms. There's actually a heightened, it's like a soap opera when you're watching a soap opera. Parallel, parallel universe in that show. Mm-hmm. It's just real enough, but it's not. Yeah. I think true of, again, many art pieces of art do that, right? And and I do think it's about about... If I, you know, were to thesisify all of my soapboxes of this evening, I would be like, it, you, things have to teach you how to watch them, right? Mm-hmm. It has to make you have to make an effort to say this is how we're going to do this thing, and I think that we as critic critics of things have to do our best to critique them on their terms, and 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 so like saying, okay, this is what this thing is trying to do. And I think this is where it's successful versus not successful. And then you can sort of bring in your own personal aesthetic into it after. That changes over time too. I mean, you know, being in pandemic, I've rewatched a lot of, you know, my favorite shows on streaming and 30 Rock, if we're, if we're talking 30 Rock, season one, the tone of season one is completely different from the tone of the rest of that show. And sometimes they find their groove and then they can throw in the, season one is much more rooted in reality than the rest mm-hmm. of the show. That's um, true. So. Um, finale, they're doing the rural juror song over this <laughs> we're supposed to be crying because we've been watching for seven seasons and the rural juror yeah. song means that much <laughs> um i'm gonna if unless anyone else has anything to add i'm gonna move into our um final section because we're gonna wrap up pretty soon um where i just want to go around uh and i'll call on people as before uh to for our final question uh, a why is this so good section with uh, one sentence or so on why uh, you know your selection of why is this so good is so good or uh, your favorite musical theater you've seen this year live or streaming old or new so um, I want to start with Rachel Dean um, uh, why don't you go first Wait, yeah um, I will plug this show forever. I saw it for the first time during the pandemic this year, and it was written by Sam Caps and Annie Dillon. Um, and it's an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice that is set with contemporary pop score, and it totally doesn't take itself seriously. Um, they directed it for a Zoom performance for, I think, She NYC Arts Festival, and I was blown away and delighted. It's, it's the only thing that I've been like riveted to my screen watching. I just thought it was brilliant. So, want to give that a shout out. Awesome. Um, let's go with um, go around my screen from there. Uh, Victoria. Okay. Well, obviously, I adored the Sondheim birthday celebration and the communal experience of waiting for the show to actually start. <laughs> but I want to highlight um, Edith Presents, which is a comedy. She's a comedian. Her name is Tabitha Brownstone, and Edith is a character who's like this old acting coach agent type who has all these dated views and very specific Hollywood attitudes. And what I love is that she was doing virtual shows on Instagram where she would bring in performers and have them perform like as a masterclass. These were unbelievably funny shows. I 
appreciated so much her efforts to get the pandemic to be less tragic in a very early scary days so edith presents by tab at the brownstone is for sure one of the best things i've seen all year awesome uh go down to beth ann <laughs> sorry um i guess a, a soundtrack that when i need a good cry i i just listen to come from away because that'll do it it's a good one yep um heath um i would my favorite thing of the last couple of weeks is i don't know if you follow on instagram there's a thing called the advent calendar which is uh it's it, speaking of like coming up with a new idea every day they they uh my friends joel joel wagner and julia madison do these miniature carols that are oh. one one per day and they are both beautifully lovingly musical theater and amazing satirical sends ups of of stylistic all over the place they're just just so funny and so delightful <laughs> awesome uh jason um i discovered i i i hadn't realized that this was available this way until sometime into the pandemic but um there's a what i think is a pro shot version of the musical home street home by fat mike jeff marks and soma snake oil that's been it's been getting workshopped around and everything fat mike's have been producing punk rock albums for god knows how long um and it's it's about runaway punk street punks living on this it's very it's it's a very fascinating piece because what to see, just to see what kind of works about the aesthetic and what doesn't work about the aesthetic like because i've i it's all of the music that i love and trying to see them make it work uh, in the musical theater context is very fascinating and it deals with some very deep dark dark issues um but then it has this kind of very that is very light bouncy pop punk score to it and uh, it's uh the full show is on youtube so nice legally i think <laughs> great uh rachel peters sure um i'm thinking mostly of a particular song also the show that it's in which is called cloaked by michelle elliott and danny larson but the song is called go on anyway which i think is just a tremendous anthem for this year um so I highly recommend that. Great. And uh, Greg? Um, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to narrow it down, but I'm thinking of the last uh, piece of performance that I actually saw in a theater, which was the, the Encore's production of uh, Mac and Mabel um, about a year ago. Um, and uh, I miss sitting in a theater so <laughs> much. I am very concerned about what our industry is going to look like uh, after... Um, this all hopefully ends soon um and so uh pretty much right after that because i saw that i think in february um and then i went back down here to delaware in march and stayed until july um because it was just really awful in new york and um my friend marianne sent me a video of mary testa singing the song um there will be a miracle from see what i want to see by michael john lacusa and uh, that just gave, I don't know why, but it's just her and a piano, and it just gave me like a little hope in my heart uh, for uh, 
the possibility of, of what we do coming back and our industry coming back. And actually, I made a whole Spotify uh, a playlist of, of COVID songs, uh, mm -hmm. if anybody wants to listen to a bunch of depressing things. Um, so, <laughs> so so that's, that, that's what I think is so good. I think that, um, especially with this discussion that we've just had, um, the passion is still there. All of our, you know, um, uh, all of our need for theater is still there. Theater has survived since the ancient Greeks. It survived plagues before. It survived the rises and falls of empires. Uh, it'll survive this. And so that's why that is so good uh, for me. Excellent. Um, does anyone have any additional final thoughts before we, before we wrap up? Anything? Just want to make sure everybody has said. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Shana, yeah, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, no, um, thank you for being part, and thank you to everyone. So I also want to shout out uh, the folks in our Facebook discussion and their conversation has been, I've been watching that uh, as we've been going along, and it's been great to see uh, people reacting uh, to to the live stream. It, this was like a, an experiment a public experiment. <laughs> so I'm glad that it, I'm glad that it worked. And thank you everybody for, for being here for this. So this will, this will end up as the, as an actual podcast episode, uh, coming out, uh, next week. So, and also I think some of the stuff we talked about, um, I've already recorded and scheduled a couple, uh, episodes for next season, season four. So, um, one of them touches a lot on, diegetic and non-diegetic music and you know what we were kind of talking about during this um we'll have one on uh disney musicals as well so um so our our discussion segues well into into season four so i was i was excited for that about that and uh yeah if that's it we're gonna stop the live stream thank you so much everyone <laughs> Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. Scene to Song will be going on a brief hiatus to prepare for season four and will return in early 2021. In the meantime, you can write to scenetosong at gmail.com with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater, or if you'd like to be a podcast guest. Follow us on Instagram at Scene to Song, on Twitter at Scene Song, and on Facebook at Scene to Song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. Thank you to everyone who has listened, and Happy New Year. Mm -hmm.